Hi everyone, and welcome to the latest episode of 42 to Doomsday. I'm Mark. And I'm Rob. And tonight, we go back to a simpler time where books are made of paper, and the only way we could watch a web affair was to read the thing. So let's go back and stay, stay on, on target. Before we launch into our main topic tonight, I think the uh, the interesting piece of news from this week is the release of a teaser, a 16-second teaser from uh, BBC about uh, just reminding us all that Doctor Who actually still exists and is coming back in August. I, well, woke up this morning and uh, saw the link and uh, instead of rolling over a bed and falling asleep again, I you know, wasted 20 seconds of my life by looking at the teaser. What did you make of it? It was short, but it did entertain me while I was eating my uh, bowl of Special K. All it was is Capaldi... An exploding TARDIS in the background, and they're coming soon, that's it. So it certainly teased me, no end. Well, the the image is a silhouetted Capaldi sort of looking down at the audience from a, a top of the stairs, is that right? I only watched it once, it was enough for me. Yeah, maybe there's something wrong with my connection. It just seemed to be, you know, a BBC voiceover and then there was a silhouette. I mean, I suppose, you know, from a marketing perspective, the show's been off the air since, well, since... Christmas. Christmas. Around Christmas. I mean, this is what marketing types do, isn't it? Remind the people that the show exists and get the appetite whetted. Clearly, there's going to be many, many more, um, you know, teasers and and scenes and, you know, clip reels and all that sort of thing. And I believe I read somewhere that um, one or the first or second or first and second episode may be shown uh, at a sort of a buyer's uh, conference somewhere in Europe, all these, um, you know, TV executives get together and, and, and watch each other's shows and decide, oh, we're going to spend uh, our budget on this and this and this. So I'm sure that there will be people out there who will be seeing the uh, you know the first couple of episodes uh, before the rest of us plebs. So, uh, uh, yeah, there's more to come, obviously. There's not much in the news, is there? There's, there was a bit of uh, the usual fake internet controversy about a female director from America. Really? can't even remember the particulars, but there was a bit of outrage. Maybe because she was American? I don't know. We are scrabbling for news here, people. Let's just move on to the next topic. On our Twitter and Facebook feeds, we asked for our listeners to give us their memories and thoughts on the Target book range. And the first one we have is Jeff Waddle. The best thing about the original Target books, apart from the covers, was the drawings. The Sea Devils look good in book form, as did the original Half-Human, Half-Cyberman, on the back of the tenth planet, brilliant stuff. Oh, I agree with that. Yeah, no, the covers on the um, on the target books were all uh, very evocative, especially the Chris Achilles covers, mm. very memorable. And if anyone out there has uh, a book called The Target Book by David J. Howe, uh, can attest uh, the last uh, few pages uh, include thumbnail reprints um, of all the covers that were used. And in an age, uh, you know, when the, when the target books were coming out in the mid to late seventies, where there was virtually no repeats in the UK anyway, um, and there were no uh, as no VHS. Uh, that sort of visual element uh, from the TV was missing and was you know handily supplemented by some of these fantastic covers, which I'm just looking looking at at the moment. Clearly, I think I've mentioned Chris Achilios before. Um, he was a mainstay of the range during the 70s, but uh, as he moved on, 
you had uh, you had uh, accomplished uh, illustrators like Andrew Skilleter and, and and others who, uh, who 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 filled the spot uh, very very well, and they're just some wonderful and not so wonderful uh, illustrations on those covers. The photo covers they did in the early eighties were particularly not very good at all. The visitation one was okay. But the ones that struck me were like Earth Shock, Ark of Infinity. The characters are holding guns on the front cover. Well, they're trying to get people to buy it because it got people holding guns. I suppose it um, it gives. I mean, you can see the one for Earth Shock, as you said, the one for Ark of Infinity. I mean, the Doctor's holding a gun, which is a you know one would think was a big no-no. But then that would just simply reflect the the times and the interests of. Uh, of the show at that at that stage, I mean, you know, Earthshock is written by Eric Saywood. It's it's you know it's got soldiers and robots, you know, Cybermen running around, you know, shooting each other. I just think it simply reflects the times, and it's a, it's a nice action shot. And it's but I mean they're poorly composed those photos, and I mean you look at the Ark of Infinity. It's uh, an actor wearing a, a pinstripe yellow uh, jacket facing off against a man wearing apparently an orange pajama top against a light orange background and it's simply ghastly it's just terrible the cover for Mordred Undead was much better Davison just looking like he couldn't be bothered getting out the TARDIS and the one for Terminus looked like he's changing a tyre <laughs> yeah I, I mean I can understand no, well I, I don't know why they went for the photos personally I mean in the end it was going to cost them more money than simply have uh, have uh, illustrations and they're not very well the photos aren't very well used they're not very well composed no. But having said that, this, I don't think those sort of things dented the sales of the of the books in any great way at all. I mean, they, they're awful to look at, but in reality, what the readers were looking for were the stories. They were looking looking at the books to read. For those who don't know, and again, once again, thanks to the uh, to the Target uh, book, who we've heavily strip mined for research, um, the, the imprint, the, the children's imprint, Target, effectively started. Um, as a, an imprint of a larger company that had made its name and money in softcore uh, erotica. Um, ironically, um, Virgin Books uh, made its money off softcore erotica 30 <laughs> years later, but that, that, that's a link that just goes down the, down the ages, doesn't it? Um, and uh, they, uh, rather, a, a number of enterprising people uh, wanted to you know, expand the business, and uh, they saw that Doctor Who was, uh, was, a, was, was a means to expand the business, and they went and bought the, the paperback rights. For the first three books, uh, people will remember that the Daleks, uh, well, Doctor Who and the Daleks, and Doctor Who and the Zabi, and Doctor Who and the Crusaders were the first three books uh, that were released in the 60s in hardcover, and the rights to the paperbacks were handily snapped up by the new imprint, and really from you know utterly small origins like that, the, uh, the, the, the range became a massive seller. I mean, you, you look at some of the figures and they say by the time it all ended, They'd sold about 13 million copies, which is for, amazing. For, well, for yeah. for a children's imprint, uh, is amazing. And again, it just mm. it's just testimony or testament to the um, to the, the the love and dedication that the fans had for the show, and also the the writers, people adapting their stories into novel form. And the lion's share of that writing was done by Terence Sticks. Well, Terence Sticks was on a good wicket there, wasn't he? Extremely good. He's coming out of being the script editor of the show, and you know, as a freelancer. What you need is work and ongoing work, and um, he'd established a good relationship with the people at Target and um, shown himself to be reliable, etc. And then proved to him proved to become even more reliable as the as the years rolled on. And he, you know, as he, he must have novelized what sixty or seventy percent of the titles. Yeah, he did a vast majority of them, and even to the point in the late seventies, he was doing a novel a month. 
he was the only writer doing them. I heard an interview with him on a radio documentary. All he was doing which really was recreating it in the viewer's mind as a script to page. That's all he was doing in, in that situation, opposed to embellishing the original story like Malcolm Hulk used to. Would you say that that's justifiable? No. This, the, his, the, the, the insane schedule aside, mm. where you're probably writing thirty to 40,000... Yeah, about thirty to 40,000 words of story a month month in month out for most of the year um that that aside that appears to be a little bit of a cop-out in my mind that you're not only are you selling yourself short as a writer where you're just saying look i've got to churn this out and i'm not going to really give a fig about the craft or the art or you know the story itself but you're also selling the audience short because the audience uh was growing up with the show and weren't you know they weren't eight or nine or ten or eleven anymore you're getting, you know, teenagers, 13 or 14 or 15, and they were expected to put up with very thin, thinly written... Uh, novelettes. Uh, novelettes, effectively. I mean, some of them... Yeah. I, I remember one of my strong memories of reading uh, Image of the Fendale was getting to the end and thinking, well, how many pages is this? 108, 110? It, I think there was a little bit more than that. But you, for the money you were paying, I suppose, back then... Um, you probably felt a little bit short-changed, but then the handy thing was another book would come along within three or four weeks and you could move on to another one. I don't know about short-changing. Let's be honest, everybody has a lot of affection for Terence Dix and, and the works he did with the novels, and certainly I do. Probably a failing on the imprint for not getting other writers to do it. I mean, Terence Dix has basically said right, other writers fell away, but that doesn't really stop them trying to tap other writers outside of the Doctor Who circle to, to adapt other scripts, potentially. That's true, I suppose, but again... I suppose if your target and you're getting guaranteed sales of twenty or thirty or forty thousand copies per uh, per title, hmm. um, it, you know it doesn't really matter who the writer is. You know you you could get an A-lister who's won the Booker, and they'd still sell the same amount uh, as compared to you know Terence Dick's ex-script editor of Doctor Who, who his books you know they, there was no great variation in the in the in the sales so. They probably thought, well, for you know the, the amount of money we're paying him, uh, why should we go out and find people whose uh, whose reliability we're not aware of, and who may ask for more money, and who may you know end up being more trouble? I think they found later on in the range uh, under Nigel Robinson that some of the writers uh, were bringing books in a bit late. Mm. I think I think Jerry Davis was a culprit at one stage. Philip Martin certainly was. Oh yes. on Varos. Eric Sayward as well. Attack of the Cybermen. Which I mean, on the flip side, you had. I think the books were by the end of the... My, my theory is that the books at the beginning of the range, the end of the range, are the best books to read. And in the middle, you have a long, uh, you know, just a long unending sequence of Terence Dick's books, who, as we said before, was churning them out. And um, it's, a, it's, it's, it's great that they, you know, Terence Dick sort of fell away and they got the actual writers in mm. uh, of the stories, the script writers, because instead of it being... Terence Dix interpreting someone else's script and doing it in a, in a fairly rushed manner, you had the actual writers coming back to their own scripts and putting their own spin on their own work, mm. um, which was, I think, I think you, you, authentic? I don't know. For a, I think it's a more authentic ex reading experience anyway. But it also gave Terence Dix the time to, when he was given a title to work on, he would do it really well. Like Warriors of the Deep, for example, is a really good novelisation, much better than the what was on television. Mm. Same with Inferno. When he wasn't churning them out every month, he could actually put more into them. And, and the results definitely showed. And this is not me attacking uh, Terence Dix as a hack. Absolutely not, no. I love Horror of Fang Rock, the TV, you know, the TV version. 
I think it's one of my it's one of my top ten Doctor Who stories. And his later longer, you know, three to three fifty page works under uh, under the Virgin with the New Adventures, um, are really, you know, some of the early ones anyway, are fantastic. Mm. Are, are fantastic reads. Exodus, one of the best books. Oh, absolutely! It's probably, mm. I mean, of the first say half dozen or dozen, it, it it is. Lots of people laud Paul Cornell's first book, Revelation, but I think that uh, Exodus is a far better book and a far it's a more rounded book with you know you know actual characters and that sort of thing and not archetypes um yes and i think it uses the uses the format you know more richly and deeply um yes so uh, i i i condemn terence dicks on on the one hand but you know you've got to acknowledge a his dedication and and b his ability as you say when he had the time to, to get to, to get the books right to get the stories right uh what other authors did you admire uh, in the range ian Marder, i thought brought a more uh, a slightly as much as you could a hard a slightly harder edge to to um to the stories i think he's i think the arc in space is a good example of him taking the style of the story and giving you a, a, a in in written in the written form you know that experience i mean you know effectively the arc in space is a haunted house in space and so you get a, a, a darker tone a more grislier tone uh, then you know that, that that use the story as a launching pad, and there's, I mean, the better writers didn't merely adapt the scripts, but they filled in the blanks. They gave you a sense of 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 what the story is about, a sense of what the characters are about, more background to their characters. You I mean look at Eric Saywood and um, his novelization of Attack of the Cybermen, where you get a sense of the characters. I mean, even though that you know the criminals at the start, you get a sense of one of the characters who's who's leave, you know he's leaving home to go to do the job. And that's something that the show never had the time or inclination to do. And for if you're reading the book, it's you just walk away with a better experience because I mean, a good book will immerse you in this world that it, that is being depicted and immerse you in the characters. And even though the character, you know, was a sort of a side character, it, it's always interesting to read to see how these people are depicted. These characters are depicted. I like Pip and Joan Baker. No you're joking. <laughs> With, and the podcast finishes there. Everybody goes on how great Malcolm Holt's books were. And uh, yes, I totally agree with that. Dinosaur Invasion in particular. Also, The Cave Monsters as well is a great adaption. As you said before, delves deeper into the characters' motivations from uh, the Silurian's point of view as well. Well, isn't there a chapter in um, The Cave Monsters told you know, wholly from the perspective of one of the Silurians? Yeah, it's brilliant. I mean, it just picks up on the themes, I suppose, of the, of the, of the TV serial and runs with it. Because, you know, the Doctor is... Uh, in the in the TV show is aghast at what the brigadier does, and you know he's trying to mediate between the two sides to an extent. And Hulk picks up picks that up and goes, well, not only is the Doctor trying to mediate between the two sides, but here's the perspective of one of the sides from one of the participants. It, it, it certainly elevates the story, absolutely. And Barry Letts's uh, adaption of the demons as well. It's a shame though he didn't get to novelise the Time Monster and the Green Death. Maybe he's too busy on the classic serials. What do you think is strong about the demons? Is it is it the the, the atmosphere that's evoked, or it's just the atmosphere it's evoked? I've read the book before I saw it, so to me the book is that old classic thing where the, the visuals in your head are much better on realisation on the screen. But definitely the, the atmosphere of that setting uh, certainly uh, evoked strong reactions from me as a uh, as a 10 or 11 year old reading it. Well, I, rem- I, I was uh, glancing over the Crusaders um, uh, earlier this week and it just reminded me of uh, sitting in a friend's sitting in a friend's lounge room and, and, and looking through the Crusaders and looking at that, that, that discussion at the start 
uh, about the nature of time travel and whether you would go back and say, you know, that old chestnut of whether you should go back and, and kill Hitler. And you, I mean, this is my point about the earlier and the later books, you know, being being the better because not only was that the book and adaptation of the serial, but it was also, you know, a rumination on time travel and uh, and, and, and whether people should interfere or not and, and, and going into other cultures. Um, and I, I find those uh, those earlier books, you know, rewarding. I mean, some of my favourites, well, some of the ones I think are the better ones are certainly, the, you know, the Auton Invasion uh, with, with just that... I'm not quite sure if it's the, the a later cover, but it's that one with the sort of the squid monster hovering over Earth, which is just fabulously evocative. That's the Andrew Skill to Regrant. Uh, was it Chris Achilleos who did the earlier cover? Yes, that's right. Yes, and that that's that's a more a pulpy cut or comic-y uh, effort, isn't it? And the Terror of the Order on three print, I don't know what the hell that's supposed to be. It's got an eye and something else. It's certainly more spooky or scary than what we've seen on television. So what are your earliest memories of, uh, of the Target novelizations, Mark? A lot of our affection towards the Target range is based on our memories. For me, the Target books were the first thing I really collected. I really started getting into and collecting. And I, my brother was collecting his Star Wars figures, which are worth a fortune now. He's set for retirement. <laughs> but I was, uh, I was focusing on, on the Target books. And I remember one of the very first books I bought was... The Crusaders, the with the reprint, with the, the Andrew skill to reprint. The Demons I got as well. A couple of the older guys at school, in my high school, uh, they were all Doctor Who fans, and they took me to Minotaur, which was the uh, a science fiction shop in, in Melbourne, which is still going strong. They used to import the latest releases from the UK uh, into the shop, and you pay an extra dollar on the cover price to get these brand new uh, imported titles in. So my first book from Minotaur was actually... Uh, the Mordred Undead with the very lacklustre Peter Davison couldn't be bothered cover. That's a big memory for me in terms of buying it, uh, buying that particular title, and then just kept getting them every month. Just started building up a collection. I remember my grandparents came over from the UK and they bought a whole stack with them uh, with of paperbacks and which hadn't been released locally. So I was quite, uh, I was devouring the invasion and the, and the Crotons novelizations as well. So a lot of them, a lot of the memories I have of them are reading them, but also. Uh, going out and buying them, especially going we're going to school excursions in in the city and popping into Minotaur and buying the latest Target book and trying to hide it from the kids at school saying, what do you got in your bag, Mark? What do you got in your bag? <laughs> How about you? I know I was definitely watching the show in the late 70s, but though I'm not quite sure when I was at started school whether I was much of a reader uh, until my parents bought a set of encyclopedias in the late, in, in 79, 80. And I absolutely went through that, and that must have sparked my interest in reading because uh, after we moved to another primary school, well, after we moved to another town, I started at, at a new primary school. I, I definitely started reading Doctor Who books. I can remember outside my uh, grade six uh, classroom, there was a, a row of shelves in the corridor which were covered with all sorts of kids' books. And I remember finishing up on um, some task in class uh, while the teacher was out and wandering out into the corridor and picking up the Curse of Peladon and looking looking at the book. Uh, I think that was uh, in, in, in a way to get away from some of the kids who were intent on bullying me. But I also remember when I joined that school, um, our librarian was a very friendly teacher, whose name I, I, I can't, uh, unfortunately can't remember, who I think picked up on the fact that I was you know obsessed with reading. And she allowed me to uh, go through the, uh, the books as they were delivered to the library. So she'd get boxes or a couple of boxes each month 
of new paperback titles that you know hadn't been covered in contact or put in the you know the Dewey or the author's uh, um, names stick it on the onto the spine. So I remember picking up a copy of it must have been uh, the Tomb of the Cyberman because I've I've this distinct image of the uh, a Cyberman's head, which it turns out to be a Revenge of the Cyberman style head, uh, plastered uh, on the cover, and that's a really strong memory that's that stayed with me. The books were very well marketed towards that that sort of demographic or that age group of boys who like to collect things you know to mm. have to like have things in a nice orderly uh procession on their shelves and uh, there was just an, it just seemed like there was an un, a never-ending stream of books that you could buy and um so i mean i remember when i was uh, buying books you know we go on holidays i remember there's a there's a small town in, in country victoria uh, where i picked up the deadly assassin and i remember reading it into the evening in the car you know as the sun was going down and and uh, and you got to the stage where I couldn't read; I had to put the damn thing away. And there was another instance where I, I bought a book. Uh, I bought this, the um, the adaptation of um, is it the Moon Base? Which you know, obviously Doctor Who and the Cybermen. And mm. re- I have really strong memories of reading that on holiday and being very taken by the the internal illustrations, the black and white illustrations, which were a feature of the books early on. So uh, and you know. You just they come out. You found them. I remember one day that I went and bought four books in one go, which cost the princely sum in total of sixteen dollars, much to my parents' horror. But uh, this is this is in dollars. So you could buy, probably buy a car with that now. You probably could, yeah. But um, yeah, I mean these these sort of things. I mean Doctor Who, as we've said before, uh, for, for people of our age, is, is is in part an exercise in nostalgia. And my, I mean, even if the literary quality of the books is not really there. The fact that they were an important part of my, you know, my youth means that I hold them very, very fondly. Over the years, I've sort of sold bits of my merchandise and bought other bits of merchandise. But the one thing I've never sold is my collection of Target books. Well, I'm unfortunately, I was a bit more, and I continue to be a bit more mercenary than that. <laughs> I, I remember in the mid 80s, mid no, the late 80s it was, we'd moved to another town and I had oh, maybe 50 or 60 of them. And I wanted to buy other novels, and there was a second-hand bookstore in town. And the lady there, the elderly lady there, who I'm fairly certain has now passed away, um, she, you know, was happy to buy them off me. And I was probably getting a dollar or two dollars a piece, and I was just turning that over and buying other books. But then, as soon as I went to university and moved to, to Melbourne, um, I'm not quite sure. I came back to the show, and I thought, bugger this, I'm going to buy, <laughs> I'm going to buy them again. And I found actually today, I found I was looking through the garage, and I found a box full of Target novelizations. And some of them with price stickers of, of $1. So I'm sure I loaded up at, at some point at one of the, um, at Kmart or Target at one point and, and, and replenished my my collection. And uh, as the 90s progressed, I, you know, filling in the gaps from the, the later ones. We've discussed, you know, our favourite titles, but which ones, a favourite title aside, I suppose, which ones made the deepest impression on you? The Fear from the Deep Adaption by Victor Pemberton. As the front cover proudly said, now in a bumper edition. Like you, I just sat down there and read that book uh, for like two or three days after I got home from school and thoroughly enjoyed that adaption because uh, I knew I'd never see it again and didn't know much about it. But that was so well written. And then he follows it up with the Pescatons novel, which is absolutely the biggest load of tripe you've ever read in my life. You've already mentioned the Ark in Space, uh, the Genesis of the Daleks book. Again, like you, I was reading it at my, at my local primary school, and it was sort of the very first 
book, I sort of progressed from Tintin and, and Asterix. So Genesis of the Daleks is sort of the very first novelization I actually sat down proper at school and read through. So I've got strong memories of that. Mind of Evil and Inferno. Read them before I actually saw them. So uh, I didn't know much about them. Also The Myth Makers by Donald Cotton as well. And the Sontaran experiment by Ian Marder. Very underrated writer, Ian Marder is. I know you sort of talk, talked about him before, but I think he's very underrated. Yeah, I remember reading that and thinking that the torture scene that uh, uh, the Sontaran did to, um, to performed on Sarah Jane was very, you know, close to the bone. There was, there was there, I think there was an element. It, was, it actually bordered on a little bit sadomasochistic. But maybe that was my 14-year-old mind just working in very strange and disturbing ways. Yeah. What about you? There's several books that really stick out to me. We went on a family holiday to to Adelaide, and we were there for well, maybe a week or so. And I ended up buying you know two or three books uh, while we were there. And the, the couple that really stick out with me for two really different reasons was The Three Doctors. There's that wonderful cover with you know Hartnell, uh, Trout, and, and Pertwee on it. It's just a beautifully, just a beautifully rendered uh, cover. Is that the original, like the Achilles one, or the, the reprint? Uh, the one with the sort of a purpley stellar background against a black hole. Yeah, it's beautiful, isn't it? Yeah, really nice. And I remember staying up in the evening and reading that, and just being just being fascinated by the concept because even though there was an endless series of repeats in the seventies and eighties in Doctor Who, when I sort of you you would only you know be. There was there were no repeats up until the mid eighties of anything that was black and white. So you had absolutely no idea who Hartnell was and who well I didn't anyway or who Troughton was. And to see the cover, you know, and, and there was that legend on the back of it or you know, the changing face or inside, the changing face of Doctor Who. Which mm. is it just for my, you know, my little brain seemed to be really fascinating. And just, you know, the the story aside, it was there's three doctors in the one story. That's it's just remarkable. And then on the same trip, uh, I picked up a copy of the War Games. And the reason why that sticks in my mind is um, we were out shopping with my mother, and we bought the book. I bought the book, probably much to her disgust again. And all the way as she was, you know, walking through uh, Adelaide, you know, through the shops, here's me trailing my mother, reading the book as I'm walking along, somehow managing not to bump into anyone uh, and keep my feet, but also probably to greatly piss my mother off uh, with her, <laughs> her son's obsession. Uh, and being exposed to the world, um, so that that the, again, there um, there are a couple of memories. That, you know, the story aside, that you, you just pick up from the books. Like we said before, it's part of your childhood, and and the collector mania that sort of swept across me anyway um, mm. was all encompassing for a while. And then you know, you, I grew up a little bit, and other things uh, sort of came to obsess me. Uh, but I, I came back to it uh, a few years later after sort of selling most of them. What about adaptions that you didn't like? Oh, I think it was uh, there was a lot in that sort of mid middle period that that were you know just just thin and and, and poorly written. I, th- I think uh, you know Destiny of the Daleks for whatever reason comes to mind as being not particularly engrossing. Um, the Unearthly Child or An Unearthly Child in, mm. in hindsight isn't a very good isn't a very good adaptation. I mean, it's interesting to to, to you know to have experienced the the first story before I actually watched it, but uh, it's just it's it's just not really good at all. I think it was done you know even by their standards in a fairly rushed manner. Mm. Uh, and I think is, is it a skeleton cover or a Pearson cover? I think it's a skeleton cover because he says that he sort of knocked that up over a weekend. Given you know, and that gives you a sense of the timeline that they were operating on. Now I'm not a, not a not a big fan of it. And as I said before, Image of the Fendale. Um, there's just not enough to it, really. It's just a. It's here's the dialogue from the script. Slap it on the page, and 
a bit of color and it unfortunately it doesn't do justice to the material any 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 that spring to mind for you that's been not very good the adaption of the romans i didn't like at all and i think it was down more to the style presented it in like a diarized format with uh, different characters okay and i and i didn't I didn't like it at the time, and I probably now wouldn't mind actually going back and rereading it again. Is it done as a straight-out comedy, or is it a bit, you know, a bit different, a bit more restrained? It's probably a bit of half-half, to be perfectly honest. Mm-hmm. But again, it's probably a title I wouldn't mind going back with older eyes and rereading it, and just try and get a different perspective on it. Because as when I read it when I was fifteen or sixteen when it came out, I did not like it at all. The Celestial Toy Maker was pants as well reading the uh, target book by david j Howe, jerry davis was really sort of clamoring to do that and then when he got the, the keys the ferrari he handed them over to uh somebody else to write who had no involvement in the production of the story a protege or somebody allison bingeman which i think was a, a slight pseudonym of a bilgeman yeah it's not i think they were working with very thin material there as well though i think ironically um the the the, the writer has actually gone on to great fame and fortune on american television writing for american television like some of the csis so uh you know even even hacks get a chance to improve or not very good writers get a chance to improve fan wisdom in the 80s the celestial Tormaker was fantastic and a classic to the point where they were doing a sequel to please the four people who saw it on the original transmission and now again with time and the uh, the reconstructions and the, and the missing episode soundtracks the revised opinion of the celestial toy maker is not particularly good at all the uh, adaption of silver nemesis was just like the television story a garbled mess well just let the tumbleweeds flow for that one i think <laughs> thank you and i've already mentioned the pescatons as well so uh, they're the ones that stick in my mind as the real clunkers of the range that aside i, th- I think it's a remarkable feat that uh of endurance uh, in part that they actually managed to well almost novelize all the titles there's still a couple uh, several out there that they have not been able to do due to rights issues and etc etc um, and I do know that um, the people behind uh, the, well, the New Zealand Doctor Who fan club and the Time Space Visualizer did do fan novelizations of uh, Revelation of the Daleks uh, Rem- City of Death Resurrection Resurrection of the Daleks but uh, City of Death is coming out later isn't it? Next year with uh, Gareth Roberts writing that yes mm. Which books do you think were actually better than the uh, the TV serial they were based on? I've already mentioned the Silurians and the Dinosaur Invasion I'm also going to say the Five Doctors because it has that missing Auton scene You're just a fan completist aren't you? I am I just love that bit uh, Logopolis and Castrovalva I enjoyed I thought they're much better than the television serials. And same with uh, Time Flight. I was glancing through, and now let me just move over to my chair here where I've got a, excuse me, I've got a whole pile of books that I pulled out of the garage. And this afternoon I was glancing through um, Castro Valva by Bidmead. Now, yes. Bidmead has his detractors, and, you know, fair enough. But um, just looking at the, well, not looking at the cover, because the cover is absolutely awful, but um, just looking at the pro style, um, I, I get the uh, you know get, get the impression from the few pages that I, I I glanced through that the book is a much better effort than uh, than uh, than Davison's first story. Um, I suppose you get a bit of uh, Bidmead's you know uh, Bidmead's obsession with with science and, and maths and all that sort of thing. Hmm. But uh, I think uh, I think he, he he was a good writer, and I think his the stories that he adapted, as you said, um, Logopolis for one, were a better effort than what was shown on, on, on screen. And it's not surprising, I suppose, because you know you, you, you add 
you know tones to characters you add flesh on the bones of the plot you you, you, you know you can describe things far better than what can be shown on television and especially mm. with doctor who's limited budget and so i, I mean there's uh, there's a, a group of writers or the different writers or the writers who you know weren't terence dicks um brought a lot to the stories that you know, I think in, in, in some instances were better than, than what we were shown on TV. Also, The Chase by John Peel is much better than the uh, television show. It's a lot tighter. Oh, yes, and less funny, I suppose. Still got the Beatles in there. But, I mean, that they- came at the end of, essentially came at the end of the range where, you know, Nigel Robinson was really prepared to get the, you know, the original writers, well, not in this, not in this case, obviously, but was prepared to get the original writers on and allow them to... You know more freedom to expand. Expand. I mean, I'm looking at the books here. I could see, you know, the chase, mission to the unknown, the mutation of time. Uh, the, the classic in this particular uh, stage of the range was um, was Remembrance of the Daleks, which really, in hindsight, feels like a precursor to the new adventures. That Aronovich takes the time to build up the, uh, the the side characters. You know, the scientists, the members from the precursor to unit. And there's there's an there's an attempt to well not an attempt. There's a successful uh, depiction of Dalek society, um, and just you, you, you get a real, uh, real sense of deeper things. That, that there's a, there's a, there's a, there's a background to events, uh, and the Daleks aren't necessarily ranting racists and fascists. That there's a culture there, that you know you would never have thought uh, that you know certainly Terry Nation would never have thought of, uh, of. But you, when you th- when you think about it, it is, is a sort of a logical extension. Aronovich, who now um, has moved into sort of uh, fantasy or u- urban fantasy writing, um, it shows a real skill uh, in, in novelizing Remembrance. It's uh, I think it's one of the um, you know one of the top ten or twenty novelizations uh, in the range. I think a lot of the latter McCoy stories, when they were novelized, were certainly a lot stronger than their television counterparts. Absolutely, I think that I mean. And the the fact that a lot of the uh, a lot of the McCoy uh, era stories have are very tightly edited means that when it came to adapting the scripts, there was far more material to use, and 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 that material that was cut, I suppose, in a sense, um, meant that you lost a bit of the the flavour and 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 the feel of the story, you know, and and of the characters, um, and allowing those those bits to come, you know, to be reintroduced into the storyline. Allows a a more free flowing story that um, that, uh, that 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 builds on what we're seeing on television. So we've received a, an email from Alex Rowan, who's uh, very kindly written in with his memories of um, reading the Target novelizations. Alex says that when he was eight or nine, my parents went on a scouting trip to Brisbane to prepare for a permanent move later in the year. Um, Alex was born in Melbourne. They came back uh, with a present, the Target novelization of Death to the Daleks, with its awesome striking cover. And now just as an aside, that is a fantastic cover, isn't it? That is a great cover, that, actually, That's yeah. one of those really striking covers that, that lingers. And I, th- I believe DWM used as a, as a cover for one of their monthly uh, titles, is that right? That's right. In that edition was a feature on the Target range, which was then expanded into the David J. Howe book. Oh, yes, that's right, that's right. So Alec goes on to say, I must have read it cover to cover many times before nagging my parents to get me another one. And this time I picked out the Talons of Wing Shiang with my favourite Doctor and one of my favourite stories up to that time and such a glorious, moody cover. 
I started to build a collection. Now, as in another aside, there's a theme there, isn't it? I mean, they, as we said before, the, the people at Target, they, they numbered the spines and, you know, there was an incentive there to fill the gaps. Now, Alex goes on to say, when I was 10, I broke my arm very badly and spent a couple of weeks in hospital. To make the stay a bit easier, my dad brought dozens of the books in a sale and brought them to me each day, one at a time. I remember him sitting by my bed reading me the last sad chapter of the war games. Later, reading the dinosaur invasion while waiting in the physiotherapist's office. Now, that's, I mean, this, this, this highlights the point about really striking memories for people at key points in their lives. I remember mm. um, when my brother was born, the week that my brother was born, um, I bought a copy of The Invisible Enemy. Was that predicting something about your brother, was it? <laughs> Well, you know, psychoanalysis may say something, but uh, no, I mean, I remember virtually nothing of the book, but I do link it with my, you know, the week that my brother was born back in 1982. Um, and it's just, it's just something that stayed with me and I can, you know, drag it out uh, in, in podcasts like this. Exactly. I remember my parents went up to Queensland for Expo 88. And this is the days domestic travel over here was very expensive. Domestic plane flight travel, I should say. And we drove to Queensland, so it takes you three days to drive up from Melbourne to Queensland. And I just took a pile of Tiger books with me and just read them cover to cover. And I remember I took Tomb of the Cybermen, The Sensorites, Reign of Terror. And they're the ones I particularly remember just reading them on this long trip. And after the first hour, the tape deck breaks. We had no music. Oh, God. A fate worse than death. <laughs> <laughs> How, how, just as a, a quick question, how long did it take you to read them? Because, you know, in the main, they were just a touch over 110, 120 pages. It felt like it used to take me an age, like it used to take me a couple of days. But I remember reading the Planet of the Giants novelette that uh, Terence put out in the, early, in the early 90s. I think I read that on the train home and the bus home from work which was just over an hour. I smashed it out very, very quickly, that one, and put it back on the shelf. I made the habit uh, of reading them in the day. I, you know, start in the morning. and Because I used, I had the habit of taking a book with me to each class in high school, and whenever I was bored or had finished, I just pulled the book out and read that instead of talking to the person sitting next to me. So I was able to plough through them um, in quick time, um, hmm. which, uh, I, you know, unfortunately, I don't have the time anymore to do that no. sort of thing but they were very quick reads and I mean that just I suppose that's the pacing of, of the story I mean there was it was incident after incident after incident after incident and I suppose that's part of the appeal I mean when you're when you're a youngster you're not you're not reading uh, Dostoyevsky or anything like that you're you're reading for entertainment and in a sense the target books were the perfect gateway drug to get into reading I think part of the problem I think it's and part of the problem I think that teachers have lamented for a long time uh, is to get boys to read books. Um, I don't think there's any particular problem getting girls to read books for whatever reason, but to get boys to read books has always seemed to have been a, a, a struggle for teachers. And uh, you, you know, you in looking up and, and doing some research for this podcast, you come across you know you know young the men today, but young boys back then who said the thing that got me into reading. And the thing that got me into writing later on was, you know, the target novelizations, and you know, the, and they, they have a, a special place in their heart for, say, Terence Dix. Um, and these, you know, the target novelizations got a lot of boys into reading. And um, if nothing else, I suppose that's that's probably their, their their great legacy. So, do you lament the fact that they're not doing novelizations of transmitted stories? I understand why they're not doing them. I mean, the the, the argument that's put out is that back in the seventies. And the early '80s, there was there were no there was no way to watch the shows again. 
So mm. it made sense to exploit the lack of any repeats or, or commercially available titles to buy to do the next best thing and issue a book. These days, you can you know download the things off iTunes, you can DVR them, you can buy them in the high street uh, on, on DVD. Um, and what's the point of having a written copy of the story when you can watch it again and again and again at your leisure? But... But... I lament the fact that you can't get them uh, in book form, in a sense, because again, you've got another. Uh, the, the whole the whole young adult writing industry now is bigger than it has ever been, and there, I think there is a space uh, for books pitched, you know, adaptations of you know modern day stories uh, pitched at you know that 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 sort of twelve to fifteen or twelve to sixteen age range, um, and I think they've, in a sense, they you don't have to adapt adapt everything that, that, that but you can adapt some of them and i think they'd sell really well and i think if they got the original author back to uh novelize it but also to embellish it which would actually encourage uh young fans to seek out the book and read it to understand more about character motivations uh, and as you said i think if you cherry pick a few i actually think they'd sell quite well i don't know what the readership is for the new doctor who book range the the original stories they do but I get the feeling that I think that a, a novelization range of selected new series stories could sit quite well with original Doctor Who fiction. I remember reading a few years ago uh, about the, the launch of the new you know range uh, after this modern series uh, started again. The BBC made the fatal error of agreeing to pay royalties and not a flat fee. So uh, at least one of the... These books sold in the tens of thousands, the new... The new uh, the, the, the new uh, stories based on the new series to the extent that uh, one of the writers was able to you know pay for an extension to her house allegedly <laughs> based off the based off the royalties of the book because they were selling 80 or 90 or 100,000 copies which is you know well it's not Harry Potter-esque of course but it's it's berserk really uh, and the BBC quickly realized the error of their ways and just made it a, a typical TV tie-in with a flat fee for the writer uh, and, and you know, as I understand it anyway, no chance for royalties. So, I mean, clearly there is a, there's a market for it because they, and even, not only is there a market for it, but you, these days you're actually getting great, you know, well-known science fiction writers in. Um, you're getting uh, Alistair Reynolds, who is probably the premier uh, British science fiction writer at the moment, who is in the, in the bestseller lists for his own original fiction, Constantly, there is definitely a market there, and you could attract really good writers. But uh, your point before about getting the actual writers in, you wouldn't do a monthly. Um, you no, know, you, you do. You pick two or three titles for each year, and you treat them as a bit of an event. Hmm. You know, and you'd, you'd allow. You know, they'd be three or four hundred pages long if the material warranted it. And uh, I, I th- you know, as we said just you know before, I think there would be a place to do that, but you know. Clearly, they don't think that the, they don't think that the, the, the it's warranted to do so, which is the, their decision, of course. A friend of the podcast, uh, Mark Harding, writes: "I managed to collect every Target novel. I had the quiz books, Travel Without the Tardis, Slipback." Alternate covers on some of them. I stopped short at the reprints with the navy blue spines. I remember the first time I went to Minotaur, and confession here, I used to work at Minotaur, uh, so I know how they priced their uh, books that Mark (laughs) mentioned before. 
I went to Minotaur and I was in awe of how many novels they had in stock. Whenever I went in, I always came out with at least two. I kept note of the release dates and made sure I went in on the day or two after release to get the latest issue. That's how I managed to pick up Mind Warp on its original release. Now, just as a sidebar, I didn't pick up Mind Warpers on its original release and was forced to... Well, no, I wasn't forced. No one had a gun to my head. I paid $20 uh, for a copy of it at a market... Uh, well, a collector's market in Melbourne a year or two after its release. You didn't... Uh, did you uh, fall into that trap, Mark? No, I actually picked up a copy when uh, Minotaur uh, got it in. So I was, I was very lucky on that. I do remember the, the previous sort of hard title to get before that was Android Atara. And uh, I remember going into the city one day with a mate of mine and we went up to Minotaur and I was sort of walking slightly ahead of him. I was a bit fitter than him, obviously. <laughs> Got into Minotaur, I saw the, the the row of Doctor Who books and there was Android Tatara, one copy, and I grabbed it. And he did not speak to me for weeks because that was extremely, extremely rare title. And then Wheel and Space was the other rare title as well because I believe they had some distribution issue where the warehouse burnt down or something if i vaguely remember something like that i remember so, something like that yeah because when i was living in country victoria the only really pla- only real place to get the books was either at my school library the local town library or at a news agency and i remember going with with a friend of mine from school and and, and buying you know a novel every so often i'd just find them in um in the news agency and then later on they sort of moved into the chain stores like target and kmart Mm. But where did you, where were you buying them from? In living in Melbourne, I was mainly buying them from Minotaur, and then picking up titles that I'd missed. Uh, so, for example, I remember picking up Wheel in Space and Underwater Menace when they got released here locally. Uh, three months later, usually Angus and Robertson's, or or somewhere like that. I do remember though, in Target in 1989, they must have got a shipment in of Target hardbacks and paperbacks from the states and they were selling the hardbacks for five dollars a pop and i bought a whole stack for a doctor who club member and i used my target discount card because i used to work there (laughs) and uh, i bought a whole stack for him and they were heavy as all hell but also i picked up a paperback copy of the two doctors first edition Uh, america was sent the first edition so i managed to pick up a couple of those and sold them for a handsome profit later on so, uh, I mean, my lament was I actually didn't pick up the hardbacks at the same time because you see the prices on eBay for those books. I've seen some titles go for like £1,500. Oh, yes, I remember seeing those, some of those eBay sales. That was just crazy stuff. Yeah. In actual fact, you, you make mention of purchasing the, that job lot from, from, from Target. A few hmm. weeks ago, by coincidence, I picked up a copy of uh, Time Flight in hardcover and uh, it was at a second-hand bookshop, but the sticker, the price sticker was on top of a price sticker which was on top of another price sticker and as I peeled away the price sticker I came across the actual Target sticker so I must have picked up a copy that someone else had purchased uh, from Target back in the day yes. uh, and the book the book was pristine it, it did not have it had I don't know they'd never cracked it open the pages were beautiful and white and, and all that sort of thing there was no lean to the spine or anything like that it was that, I mean Time Flight is rubbish so I can understand why they wouldn't have read it but um it, it, it must have looked nice on the shelf anyway. As, as you say, that there was or may still be a the definite collector's market out there, obviously just for the, the rare hardcovers. The offshoot ranges they came up with, say, for example, the Missing Stories season that it did for the aborted season 23 and also the Companions of Doctor Who. Ranges, did you read any of those titles? Um, there is a box amidst uh, 60 or 70 other boxes that I'm sure contains um, in my garage that contains uh, those stories. I, I definitely... I, 
I'm fairly certain that I have all of the target books, um, or at least all of the novelizations, including you know the companions of, and uh, and the adaptations of the you know season twenty three for instance. Um, but it's just you know I bought them oh god almost twenty years ago now, and I've read some and I haven't read the rest. But I'm fairly certain I've got you know all of them. The season twenty three novels I can understand why it was cancelled. But the one title that stands out for me was the Harry Sullivan's War Book by Ian Martyr, The Companions of Doctor Who range. Ian Martyr really is a forgotten hero of Doctor Who, isn't he? He is. Acting and novelisation and writing. Yeah. I think his reputation as a, as a writer, it's just a pity that he died when he did because I think he could have... He'd gotten his foot... Gotten his foot? He had his foot in the door of, you know... N- not only novelising Doctor Who, but also you know other other titles. He's doing film tie-ins as well, wasn't he? And it's 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 you know it's a short short step to a, a proper a proper in air quotes writing career. I mean, you just you just he just would have needed that break if that's what he wanted to do. And of course, as as Harry, we're completely diverse here, but as Harry Sullivan, he's just he's a perfect fall for the Doctor and Sarah Jane. And I've I know that there's a Myth Makers interview with him, um, but it's just. It just fills me with a little bit of sadness that Ian Marta isn't as acknowledged as he, as he probably should be. Everyone talks about the Fourth Doctor and Sarah Jane Smith, but I I think that first season, um, first Tom Baker season, is made by having uh, Harry Sullivan in, and uh, you know he he was I think Harry Sullivan was gone too soon, but at least we had uh, Ian Marta novelising some you know some really good stories, and one of those was en- Enemy of the World. I remember picking that up and. And uh, and and being really struck by it because here was a Troughton story, and actually looking back at it again, um, I note that the scene where the Doctor runs into the surf is completely you know just it just didn't make it to the book. I don't even know whether it's it's depicted in the script. Oh, I suppose it would be otherwise they wouldn't have filmed it. But mm. it's uh it's it's just interesting to see the the adapter at work by you know you know just chopping stuff and moving it around a lot of those adaptions of the first and second doctors that was our first gateway into the early years of the show yes oh absolutely i mean i should i should go back and read enemy of the world and the web of fear having now having now seen them you know for the first time ever and just 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 for interest just for the sake of comparing them to see um with a complete or almost complete lack of visual material how the uh, the two writers who adapted those two TV lost formerly lost TV stories brought the story back to life because I, I think it'd just be interesting to compare and contrast. Wasn't there a controversy that the word bastard was used in the uh, Enemy of the World? Yes, Ian Marta was quite happy to um, stretch the boundaries. I suppose. Uh, I mean, it's the easiest thing in the world to swear uh, these days, but to see it in a what is you know a lot of people regarded as being kids' books. Um, did cause some controversy, and there's, I think, uh, another you know, sort of not well complaint or comment was that there was just a bit too much gore. He'd sort of dwelt on that a little bit too much, but I mean, these were these. When you think about it, Doctor Who is a story, or Doctor Who is a series that rides on the back of people's deaths and invasions and violence, and it's look, it's 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 sugarcoated in some instances, uh, unless you're Condo having your chest shot out, but you know, <laughs> it's uh, and. We, again, we meant by mentioning this before, that these days we sort of, you know, uh, swaddle our kids in, in cotton wool and, you know, we try to protect them from the harsh realities of the world. Yet here is a TV series, the glory, not glories, but, you know, has that as a, it's, it's one of its fundamental elements. And our parents were allowing it, you know, we're buying us stories that were filled with death and violence and destruction on one level. And we were going out and buying and happily lapping it up 30, 30 20 or 30 years ago. 
times have changed a little, I think. And, I, you know, I think the sort of thing that we were reading back then, if they were doing it these days, uh, people would be not necessarily up in arms, but a bit queasy about the whole idea. Hmm. But then I haven't really read, read a, a young adult's book uh, in a long time, so I don't know what the market's doing at the moment, but uh, it'd be interesting to see. Twilight's not your thing? Well, if we ever <laughs> ran out of toilet paper, it would be my thing. <laughs> yes, thoroughly absorbent as well. <laughs> Now, Mark goes on to say, uh, I remember scouring second-hand bookshops all over Melbourne trying to find the few elusive ones. From Chapel Street uh, to the suburb of Box Hill to little shops upstairs and alleyways. It was a buzz finding a book I didn't have. Um, I will say that for a long time, you couldn't go into a second-hand bookshop in metropolitan Melbourne and not fall over a Doctor Who, uh, second-hand Doctor Pile. Who book. Yeah. Uh, they were just, I mean, as we said before, 13 million of the damn things were sold around the world and a lot of them were sold here. But mm. you go... Uh, I mean, the number of second-hand bookshops in Melbourne has, has shrunk uh, over the last 20 years. But even so, you go in and they, they are very hard to find now, which doesn't actually increase their rarity value, but does speak to the fact that they've all gone somewhere. They've all gone somewhere. Well, eBay seems to be the main marketplace for the novelizations. Well, for a lot of Doctor Who merchandise these days, isn't it, really? That's true. But, I mean, you see endless lists of uh, Doctor Who uh, novelizations for sale on eBay at you know really low rates and i don't think they're really selling in any great you know numbers what do you think the legacy of the range is i suppose for me anyway the legacy is the latter days of, of the range where uh, nigel robinson was pushing uh, and successfully pushed to have uh, original uh, fiction uh, you know be approved to be written because you know clearly they were running out of stories to novelize um so I think the legacy is that the new adventures were born out of the ashes of the Target imprint and that spawned the missing adventures and then that spawned the BBC books. And those a, a number of those writers who grew up with Terence Dix, who grew up with Target novelizations, your Paul, your, you know, your Paul Cornells, your Gaddises, your Davies, your Robinsons, um, they all you know came up through that. And have gone on to you know pretty fertile and pretty uh, interesting writing careers themselves. So, apart from the nostalgia value and being you know st- sitting alongside my memories of the TV show, I think that the legacy there's a strand running from the you know, the, the hardback adaptions in the 60s all the way to now because you know as we know Cornell's written for the series, Gaddis has written for the series, Davis brought Davis brought the series back. So I think the legacy is a, a long one and a and a strong one, um, to coin a phrase. Uh, what, what, what do you think, Mark? The great thing for me about the Target books is that they continue to live on today. BBC Books have reprinted a small number of novelisations with forwards by Stephen Moffat and RTD with lovely Achilleos covers. Um, I was hoping, actually, would they, they'd continue with those reprints because there's some great covers that I'd like to get my hands on. For example, the original covers for The Giant Robot, Terror of the Autons, Green Death, Plant the Spiders, Web of Fear. Those covers were much better than the reprints that came along after it. So I was hoping they'd continue that so I can get some nice clean copies for my collection. But also the BBC Audio Books are doing uh, unabridged reading of the novelizations as well. So, And in some cases, they're actually going back and rewriting them. So Stones of Blood, Androids of Tara, for example, was rewritten by David Fisher. And An Unearthly Child, you mentioned before, didn't impact on you greatly. But Nigel Robinson had uh, rewritten the novelization for that and was being read by William Russell. But 
I think because AudioGo went into administration, it hasn't been released yet. I've listened to a couple of those audio book adaptions. Fury from the Deep was one. Planet of the Daleks, I'm starting now with Mark Gaddis. That's one of his favourite novelizations. So I'm only a couple of chapters in, but you can just tell he really loves that book because he gives his he gives the reading a real dynamism, you know, a real drive. So uh, I'm looking forward to going through the rest of that. And I've also had a quick listen, or sort of flicking through a few tracks of the Colin Baker reading out The Twin Dilemma. So he sort of starts off by Eric, and there's like a long gap for 10 minutes, and then he goes, Sayward. So they probably bleeped out <laughs> Colin's more vocal comments about Sayward, maybe, I'm not too sure. But yeah, look, the range lives on in different ways, and long may it continue. probably should have a jingle for this but it's letters time it's our letters column you've got mail our first uh, comment uh is from doc whom on our blog now just a reminder to our listeners we actually have a blog we don't do anything with it <laughs> but uh we do have a blog uh what's that address mark 42 to doomsday at wordpress 42 to doomsday.wordpress.com yes check out our blog uh yes yeah, so our uh, doc whom left the following message now doc whom i believe is one of the uh trio who uh the diddly dummers yes the diddly dummers who did the diddly dumb podcast uh so there's a nice shout out for them uh so doc whom uh makes just to makes a comment um on something that i think you raised earlier in an earlier podcast mark uh he says tell me you didn't get george and mildred in australia to quote a recent doctor <laughs> we are so so sorry okay now my parents are big george and mildred fans and uh, hence them taking me out of school to take me to see George and Mildred the movie. Uh, when we uh, moved to Australia, we, my parents were delighted to uh, know that uh, Australia had George and Mildred on repeats very much all the time. When they got their first video recorder, they taped George and Mildred. What? And people say we're obsessed about something. George and Mildred. Well, George and Mildred. I will tie it back to Doctor Who, though. Youth uh, Joyce, who played Mildred, was engaged to David Whittaker. The show's first script editor. The award for the most obscure reference ever, I think, goes to you, Mark. I can do more, but uh, can yeah, you I can. Demonstrate, demonstrate? No, I won't. But I don't know. Did uh, George and Mildred the movie, which is appalling, ever make its way to uh, Australian shores, Rob? Can you, when your parents took you out of school to go and see it, did you, uh, <laughs> did you enjoy it? <laughs> well, I lived in a one-horse town with a one-screen cinema, and um, that wasn't a one-horse town. But it was definitely a one-screen cinema, and I don't think they were giving it over to uh, uh, cinema adaptations of uh, or cinema screenings of George and Mildred. No, I do remember the TV series, and I do remember chuckling away. But you know, it was simpler times back then. What they used to do over here was they used to get British shows that had been cancelled in in the UK, for example, like Love Thy Neighbour or Father Dear Father, and reset them in Australia. They used to call it Love Thy Neighbour Down Under. And didn't they do Are You Being Served Down they Under as well? They did do an adaptation down here. Are You Being Served, I think it was on Channel 10. And I believe that they've wiped all the tapes of that show. So Phil Morris, do not go and find them. Now, we did actually make a pact before the recording not to mention the Omni Room, Mark. Oh, so you've sorry. Just, you've shattered that. <laughs> Moving very swiftly on. Uh, we have a, a, a message. Not a message. I, I, in these modern times, it's an email. Sorry. We have an email from an Angela. Uh, and Angela says... 
thanks for the most recent podcast about villains. I really enjoyed it and figured I'd send you through a few responses. Uh, now, she makes a mention of the Logies being on par with the BAFTA. Hmm. Now, that tongue, hopefully, firmly in cheek there, fellas. Absolutely. That tongue was firmly in the cheek and actually piercing through the cheek. Into someone else's cheek, I think. Yeah. I think I used the word Z-list. And even that is too great a description for the Logies. She goes on to say, I found the thing in Midnight very disturbing, but for me, the most unsettling villain, if I may call her that, is the mother in Hungry Earth Cold Blood. I still find, find her behaviour the most awful. I still have trouble watching it, and at the time, it made me ashamed to be human. So there's a very definite evocative response there to, uh, mm. for Angela. Um, I didn't connect the doctor's grief over the master with the master's perpetrating domestic violence. Maybe I should have, but at the time, I connected more with what Martha and her family were going through anyway. Thanks for the new perspective. I very much enjoyed your take on the Time Lords. Never thought of it like that, and thank you again for an interesting and frankly funny point of view. For me, I enjoyed the chief clown in The Greatest Show on the Galaxy, mostly because I use it against one of my brother-in-laws who hates clowns, so I get a lot of use out of him. I'm trying to figure out which episode to use to introduce my 10-year-old niece to Doctor Who. She's very, very sensitive. I've been considering starting with a Sarah Jane adventure story, but I'm still concerned that even they may be too much for her. Any ideas? Thanks again for a great listen. Don't take so long next time. Cheers, Angela. Well, we try and keep to our... uh, twice monthly schedule Angela but um, yeah no, we'll, we'll try to do better in the future definitely unfortunately DIY duties are taking a priority in my household at the moment and mine as well happy wife happy life people don't understand the joys of pouring cement in the backyard it's just uh, it's thrilling absolutely thrilling much easier than bloody painting ceilings but anyway I digress but her point about introducing her 10 year old niece uh, to Doctor Who um, any anything that you'd 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 show to a ten year old girl? Oh, definitely Caves of Androzani, followed by Brandon Morbius, and maybe Sea to Doom. No, trying to get my son in, interested in Doctor Who. I actually showed him Revenge of the Cybermen. Interesting. Yes, I felt that was the more safe option. Safe option, and he did enjoy it because every time an episode finished, he said again. I then sort of said, "Oh, he likes a Cyberman. I'll put Earthshock on." It wasn't a great idea, but anyway. But uh, I think I went back to Angela and said, "Look, try Revenge of the Cybermen, and maybe." City of Death? Probably the McCoy ones you could probably show her. Well, the season 24, maybe. God help us. Yeah, it's hard, it's hard to know what to show. What would I mean, I don't, I, there's very... It's, the choice is thin on the ground for the, for the classic series. Mm. If I was, you know, was going to do that... If I, my, my daughter is... Uh, my eldest daughter is in the same age range as Angela's niece. Uh, the, I don't think there'd be anything I could show her from the classic series because she'd be bored out of her mind mm. you know, fairly quickly. Which is understandable. Uh, as for the new series, I, I think we've discussed this before. Um, she's uh, she's she's pretty sensitive as well. So there's there's a limited palette of what I could actually show her. Maybe something from the Sarah Jane Adventures range. Yes. Um, I think yeah, I think she could probably stomach some of that. But um, I, you know, again, as you said, it, you, you could you couldn't show caves followed by seeds followed by brain Morbius know, revelation of the ducks. <laughs> <laughs> to a to a girl, no. let alone a boy of that age. No, uh, exactly they're, they're, right. They're very he- heavy fare. But maybe if our, our listeners could give us some suggestions to pass on, that'd be great. Because um, again, I'm showing my son the new series, but I would like to show him some more classic episodes. I sort of can't work out which ones to show him. So if you've got any, uh, let us know. Well, I suppose you know if you were going to go for just keeping their attention, uh, probably a uh, a Davison two-parter, though. Oh God, Black Orchid. Oh, the really? Awakening, yeah, the Awakening's uh, alright. I think you could, for a boy, not to be gender whatever, but I think a boy would probably uh, respond better to 
of the awakening and then black orchid for instance I mean, you don't want Adric as being a role model for a young boy, surely. Or Anthony Aileen's master and King's demons. Yeah, no. Yes, we'll be. <laughs> right. So thanks, Angela, for your uh, for your email there. And as, as Mark said, if anyone has any tips for Angela, please send them in and we'll, uh, we'll read them out in the next podcast. Now, the next uh, email is from John Davies. He writes to us and says, I'm enjoying your podcast. Your discussion on Australian sci-fi at the end of the Villains podcast has prompted my response. So... He's mentioned a few series called The Stranger, which ran from 1964 to 65. The Magic Boomerang uh, in 1966, which is more of a fantasy series than sci-fi. The Interpretarist, that's right. And a series called Vega 4 and another one called Phoenix 5, which are all from the mid to late 60s. In the 70s, there's one called The Evil Touch, which is an anthology thriller, Alpha, Scorpio and Andra in 1976. But it doesn't seem to be anything in the 80s, but... Um, John has sent through all these uh, links and to more information on, on these shows. So what we'll do is we'll put those uh, links up on our blog. Well, actually, we'll use the blog and also our Facebook page as well. Absolutely. I think the striking thing about uh, Australian genre um, you know, TV is that whilst there appears to be a, a relative lack of that, during the 70s in cinema, there was a lot of uh, Australian genre, uh, you know, mainly, I think, concentrating on, on horror. Like, I think there was a a movie called Patrick about a, a bed-bound, evil, psychotic uh, telepath. Uh, and there was another one based around a rat, I think. I can't remember. Roland? But, uh, Ronald? <laughs> no, Roland the rat. Was oh, it? Roland. Oh, you caught me there, <laughs> haven't you? But yeah, it's just it's interesting that um, there, anyway, in the 80s and 90s and today, that there's a definite lack of uh, genre TV and genre filmmaking. But I suppose that's just the industry that we have here in, in, a, in a small country far, far away from everywhere else. Should we finish off with what have you been watching? Yes, I think we should, Mark. And uh, let's go with you. What have you been watching or listening to? While I was doing my garden a couple of weeks ago, I uh, listened to Dark Eyes 2. That's the Big Finish. Uh... Paul McGann box set. So we don't review Big Finish, but I will give you one word or a couple of words to describe it. It was good and I enjoyed uh, Alex McQueen's master. Excellent. You've just spoiled me there. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry about that. Spoiler warning. Spoiler warning. I haven't watched hardly any Doctor Who, but I did go and watch the Web of Fear DVD. And again, I was amazed. I was watching it again. And it lived up to my expectations. Even the recon in episode three, which seemed to drag when I watched it the first time around, whizzed through and I was astounded by how good it was. And also the quality of the restoration on the DVD is superb. Actually, just you mentioning that reminds me that uh, Paul Venezes put up a three or four minute clip of some of the restoration process that uh, went uh, that went on when enemy and, and web were returned to the bbc and that's well worth having a look at on, on youtube um and I've, i i don't know for certain but i'm reasonably sure that if there ever is a special edition uh that clip or uh, that four you know three or four minute clip will appear and hopefully it's you know actually part of a much longer much longer look at the restoration of, of those two returned episodes. Yeah, they don't really sort of delve into the restoration that much on, on the DVD extras. They sort of do ones like on the Solarians DVD, they did a very short feature on how they did things. But I'd love to see how 
I suppose from the beginning of the process, like what Paul Venezes was showing on on his little doco, but just the whole the whole thing. It's a very fascinating topic to me personally, anyway. Likewise with myself. I mean, just you know, we've gone off on a tangent here, but watching him pick away at the tape holding the the film together was a frighteningly <laughs> manual task and seemed to me fraught with the potential for disaster. Um, but he's an expert and he's been doing this for years, yes. so um, it, it, it was literally in safe hands. But just seeing the tape coming away and the fragments and you're thinking, my God, what a what an absolute feat to turn that into what we got back in October. I, you know, I take my hat off to not only Venezes but all the other gentlemen who were involved in, in restoring uh, those two stories. They did a, a really remarkable job. So looking forward to the special edition of that release. Uh, that's really it for Doctor Who Wise. I've been focusing on finishing off Breaking Bad and up to season four of The West Wing, which I'm thoroughly enjoying. What about you, Rob? So I've been catching up with um, some of them again, uh, big finish audios, particularly the latter ones from the uh, the, the Earth Doctor Lucy Miller uh, run. I've uh, just uh, finished listening to Prisoners of the Sun and the story before that, which featured uh, Carol Ann Ford and uh, Paul McGann's son as he's playing his great-grandson, the Doctor's great-grandson, which is, uh, they, they, were, they, were, they were pretty entertaining, actually. I was, they were, you know, short and sweet and uh, got the job done. And uh, I'm looking forward to, uh, whilst I've completely managed to stay unspoiled, uh, I imagine the last couple of stories in that run are, uh, are fairly dramatic because it all leads into uh, into the Dark Eyes range, as, you, as you've mentioned before. Uh, as part of my... Um, uh, uh, voluntary re- reviewing for um, Impulse Gamer. I've uh, people. I've taken a bullet for all of you by watching and reviewing the Ultimate Guide. Uh, again, in a nutshell, on this podcast, it's possibly one of the most awful things I've ever had to view. You can read uh, my seven hundred word rant on ImpulseGamer.com.au about the Ultimate Guide just a pure cash in for the sake of it and it's just goddamn awful in every sense of the word steer clear do not buy boycott that title it's just terrible having said that we've actually got a prize copy to give away in this podcast Uh, mark didn't tell me that before (laughs) having said that we do have a free copy for you to give away we do indeed actually (laughs) lovely Um, moving away from Doctor Who um, as again as part of my uh, work uh, reviewing I've been really lucky to pick up uh, a Blu-ray copy of American uh, Hustle which um, I'm going to be watching with my wife again and I've been uh, we've been watching Rake the Australian TV series Rake which stars uh, Richard Roxburgh um, uh, which is uh, just delightfully funny and and excessive and uh, and uh, just a a really uh, it it just features a, a complete array of Australian acting talent Frequently uh, in various states of undress, particularly in season one, and most, mostly the ladies. Um, but um, yeah, that's uh, that's basically what I've been watching. And as usual, I've been plowing through some books which no one would be interested in. So yes, did the Americans do a remake? Just cancelled this week, apparently. Of course, of course. Did they go on a gene hunt at the end? Did they? <laughs> as Rob alluded to before, we've actually have got a prize copy of Doctor Who The Ultimate Guide to give away the best-selling and much-loved Doctor Who uh, The Ultimate Guide from our friends at BBC on DVD. Instead of us asking a question and you responding, we'd like you to send us a question via our Facebook or Twitter or Gmail accounts uh, with a question you'd like us to answer. And the best one that uh, we think is uh, 
is worthy of the prize, you will win it. Is it? Does it have to be Doctor Who related, the question mark? It doesn't have to be. You can ask us about music if you want. I'm happy to talk about music if you want me to. Yeah, that'd be lovely. Yeah. What are your thoughts on music, Mark? Well, I failed as a parent the other night. For education week, they opened up the school. We're going through the classrooms and seeing all the artwork. Went to my son's classroom and there's a competition on the board saying which one of these people aren't in the Beatles. So you had a picture of John, Paul, George and Ringo and Justin Bieber with a mop haircut and my son said John Lennon was not in the Beatles and my heart was crushed. Was your guitar weeping gently? It was it was gently weeping and uh, yes, I was on a downward path via a helter-skelter. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, I've been trying to play him while painting the ceilings, been trying to play as much Beatles music as I can, but he's told me to turn it down. These young kids today, they're, they're hooligans they are really. The youth of today. Youth. youth. The youth of today. And uh, because we're happy to plug uh, the work of uh, people who've come onto the show and, and, and helped us, uh, The Science of Doctor Who here in Australia is still touring, uh, hosted by friend of the show Rob Lloyd. Uh, the remaining dates, uh, now it is the evening of the 25th of May here uh, as we record. So um, the podcast may be out in time for the Adelaide show on the 31st of May. It'll definitely be out in time for the Melbourne shows on the 13th, 14th and 15th of June. So they've, uh, Rob has been uh, heavily uh, marketing and promoting the show uh, here in Melbourne, uh, and uh, it's going down uh, gangbusters apparently. So um, if you're interested and you're a Doctor Who fan, you like a bit of uh, real science, uh, get on down to uh, the science of Doctor Who. So thanks everyone once again for downloading and listening to our podcast. I've been Terence Dix's very battered typewriter. And I've been Pip and Jane Baker's very battered thesaurus. We'll see you again soon. Until next time, bye-bye. You've been listening to another episode of 42 to Doomsday, the Doctor Who podcast hosted by Rob and Mark. You can contact us on our Twitter account at 42 to Doomsday. You can email us at our Gmail account, 42 to Doomsday at gmail.com. Facebook us at facebook.com forward slash 42 to Doomsday. Until we meet again, thank you very much for listening. We'll see you soon.